so at the age of 24, living in Ibiza, Matt Haig stepped to a ledge on a cliff with the intention of launching himself to his end. But something pulled him back. That experience, it led him and his girlfriend, who'd eventually become his wife, back to his childhood home, where Matt would begin a process of picking up the pieces of his life. A writer, he has kept that season of profound darkness and revelation and recovery within his family. While he deepened into a career as a novelist and a children's book author, it was always there, but never let seem the light of day outside of those who knew him best, not even his friends. But years later, many years later, a simple blog post that he never thought anyone would see effectively outed that experience, leading soon after to a book a year later called Reasons to Stay Alive that became this massive bestseller and also expanded Matt's notoriety into the world of personal growth. He has since blended fiction and nonfiction, penning more novels, sometimes exploring big existential questions, but in honest and accessible ways. In his book, The Midnight Library, just hit to a million copies sold in the US. And Matt's latest book, The Comfort Book, is kind of like his life raft. It's a collection of notes and lists and stories written over a span of several years that originally served as gentle reminders to his future self that things are not always as dark as they may seem. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. I'm looking forward to writing actually sitting down writing something new because um yeah most of this year i haven't done that 
What's it? What do you look for with that? I'm curious. Is there something that that kind of lets you know it's time to sit down, or do you just sort of say, "I have a deadline. I need to start putting words on a page." Yeah, I've had to be quite strict with my UK publishers and PR people, and you know, I've got auto responses, and I, I'm sort of saying, you know, okay, we haven't got a book literally out now, so other than my prior commitments, I'm just gonna keep my head, head down and get into it. Cause I'm someone who needs, I need a good run up with ideas. It's not like I can just sort of like switch off, get on my computer and then just go. I need, I need to really like take a while to get in that zone. And um, I haven't really had that time. There's always been something, but generally like, you know, if I'm required to go to London for something or, you know, it just totally throws me, throws me off. So it's it's been good to actually be be strict because I've always been such a yes person in the sense that I feel grateful to be asked for things. So I say yes, 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 yes. And this these last two years have been the first times where I, I couldn't feasibly be yes to everything person. So it's had to be more no's and yeses. And it's been quite good to just have some sort of sense of boundaries and that feeling that you don't need to do every opportunity. It's not, you know, there are other you know, you, you still have to have a life too. And, you know, there's certain things that you think, well, yeah, that could have been big, but, you know, you have to just sort of create some sort of space thing. Yeah. I'm curious, you're at a moment in your career at this point where you have this ability to actually, you know, say yes or no to do. You have more things being presented to you or more opportunities than you have time and bandwidth to actually engage with. How do you discern what is worthy of um, your saying yes at this point? Well. You know, I think it's two things. I think one of them is, you know, is it something I would actually want to do? You know, you you run a little checks and balances about how much time I'd invest in that and how much I'd get out of that. And, you know, for instance, my publicists know that I'm, I'm kind of allergic to writing pieces for people, you know, because that really, you know, that takes some mental energy to do it well and it's it's never financially worthwhile and it's also just you know that compared to sort of like 10 minutes on the phone to a journalist and you're answering a few questions that's not that time consuming but also i've had to be a bit careful now even with interviews about saying yes to things because we're in this age now that um and i don't get it like a proper you know celebrity or something but People are all about the clicks now, certainly in my country, certainly in the UK, where we have quite a negative press. So if you're doing an interview, I don't really get so much for puff pieces anymore. It's more about me as a person. And that you have to be so careful because, you know, you'll say one thing out of context, that becomes the headline. And um, that's the only thing anyone sees from it on social media. So, and I'm someone who's quite, loose lips. I don't think I've got too many controversial opinions or anything, but I'll just I'll just sort of like free flow, which is great on a podcast, obviously. But w- when it's a newspaper and people aren't getting your intonation or they're not hearing your voice, it's uh, it can be a risky, risky thing, that whole media perception. So I've learned the things to say no to. I mean, any any piece, we, a lot of our newspapers have pieces about your income or your house or, you know, what you spend your money on and things like that. And, and that's just certainly among British people, that, that's just 
asking for a load of negativity to come your way. So it's it's just about doing things that you think are worthwhile. Sometimes it's because you like the people. Sometimes it's because it's media you yourself consume and you think it'd be cool to be in. Um, sometimes it's just simply doing a favor for someone. And then there's clear things that are doing now. I don't, you know, generally, if a lot of travel's involved or, you know, it's a speech, I'm not great at speeches. I don't mind interviews. I don't mind being up on stage and being interviewed by someone. But if it's me at the um, podium in sort of TED Talk mode, I really avoid that. I have done it. I've done a whole tour like that before. But I, I prefer to have a wing man or a wing person um, who will sort of be there as a support um, to bounce things off. But uh, yeah, it's just a feeling, isn't it? You, you know what, you know, you, as you get older, you, you tend to know what you like doing. And also, if you really don't like doing something, the chances are it's not going to be very good. You're not going to be able to be your best self. So it's actually, you know, a negative. As with writing books, it's, it's always good to actually write something that you're interested in. It's always good to mm. do things that you're interested in because then you'll have more to offer and more to say and more enthusiasm for it. And I think that's what I, I, I've learned too. You know, when it comes to podcasts, obviously doing yours, I'm very selective. But, you know, it, it's good if it's a, you know, if you can chat about interesting things and um, it's not always the case. And, um, yeah, sorry, I don't know where I'm going with this ramble. But anyway, yes, I am becoming, I'm, becoming, <laughs> all, yeah. I'm becoming slowly more discerning. Yeah, and I think it's so interesting, you know, like what you shared. We're, we're in this moment right now where if you like to say things that are, are honest and true, um, but also may be perceived by some people in some way as provocative or polarizing if they're not received in context. And we're in this sort of like soundbite society where like you know, people pick and choose what they want to actually focus on. It is a dicey window, you know, but at the same time, I know you're a fan of Twitter and, and there are things that, you know, there are moments where you um, kind of have to bring yourself to those, but also at the same time, you know, with you in particular, I'm fascinated by this because in what you just shared, so much of what you've written about and really sort of written publicly about since 2015 or so relates to a life of not sharing what was going on, not sharing your inner life, not sharing your thoughts, your struggles, your anxiety. And it's almost like once you open that floodgate, I wonder, you know, is it almost like a mental health issue to try and figure out where you close it or where you like when you put it back up? Yes, I think so. Yeah, for context, I had my real first encounter with mental illness and a breakdown in 1999, continually ill for three years, then since then had um, bouts, never quite as deep as that one. But um, I was not talking about mental health at all or writing about mental health until about 2015. So that was a, a way over a decade of being quiet to everyone who wasn't my parent or wasn't my partner. Even most of my friends didn't really know. Um, and I lost a, a few friends here and there, you know, not being able to do things and, you know, and not really explaining why. Yeah. And now, as soon as I started talking about it, as soon as I started writing about it, and then you get this kind of, certainly when you start writing about it, you come out and there's a bit of a shock factor because people didn't know about you. You get this sort of warm flood of support, which for me was very welcome because you know i mean my as for a lot of people one of my key defining memories of illness 
was loneliness, you know, of feeling like you're literally the only person on the planet who feels like this. And it's melodramatic, but, you know, depression tends to give you these melodramatic thoughts and, um, you know, feeling very alone and very isolated. So when you talk about it and then the opposite happens and you hear from like thousands of people and they've all had similar experiences and stuff, suddenly you feel like, oh, okay, I, I, I was part of something bigger and it's just something that lots of people go through. It's these sort of invisible wars that lots of people go through. And I found that incredibly comforting because, you know, when I was first ill, you go back 20 years and the mental health conversation was very different. I mean, if you thought about famous people, people in the public eye who were mentally ill um, or had been through mental illness, you tended to think of famous suicides. It sounds terrible, but, you know, you thought of your Kurt Cobain and your Hemingways and your Virginia Woolf and you, you thought, you know, you, the, the, the arc of mental illness was very sort of a tragic narrative always. That's Because often you only found out about it when people were literally at their lowest point. So one thing I am thankful for in this day and age is that, and through my own experience of writing about it, is that's a very different situation now, obviously. When we think of mental illness, we don't automatically think it's a continual downward spiral and some sort of people who are too creative or too sensitive for this world. And, you know, they just kind of, and that sort of narrative, that quite romanticized narrative um, has changed and we see it much more as a health issue among other health issues. And you can think always now of living surviving thriving public figures who have had known you know sports people singers writers whoever who have gone through stuff who still know good things in their life so that's great and it was very addictive really for me to sort of like come out and um do that i mean i think in terms of my books i'm at a point now where enough is enough i don't feel i'm qualified to say more than i already have said um yeah. because i've written now three Okay, relatively short, but three non-fiction books about mental illness. There's obviously uh, my fiction book, The Midnight Library, which has a strong theme of um, mental illness and suicide. And I feel like I've explored, in each of the non-fiction books, I found a different angle to sort of come at it. In the novel, obviously, that's a totally different angle to come at it. But I've kind of done it now. Um, I will still talk online a bit about it because it's often just in my head and it's, you know it's not an issue that goes away but in terms of like going deeper in terms of book format i i feel like this is the time to step away from it and and i also want to sort of prove to myself and others hopefully that i have more in me than just directly talking about depression or drawing on that part of my personal experience and i just get a little bit bored as well after, after a while um, I love having a platform where at any point I can say something. But also Twitter, it's very dangerous, you know, because uh, certainly for someone like me, because when I'm talking, I often use very sort of simple words. As a writer, I'm just drawn to sort of monosyllables and making things as stripped down and kind of universal as possible. But it's a universality drawn from my own subjective experience. So, but when you're actually sort of making a statement about mental health, I'm not meaning it applies to everyone, but I'm trying to sort of make it readable and accessible to everyone. And then it goes out there. And then someone obviously, because everyone does, have a different experience of their 
mental illness and then they think oh well, are you trying to tell me how i should feel about my and it's like i'm not but i can see how on twitter these misinterpretations and tensions happen so i'm being a bit more careful of how i talk about it on twitter at least i feel like instagram they there's a bit more elasticity people are willing to cut you some more slack and be more supportive and understand context whereas in twitter i almost think we opposite tendencies true you're over pleased and, and, and it almost stifles sort of your free expression of what you want to say or think and you know obviously in a mental health context I, i'm very pro people being able to talk about um, their own experience i just think when you start to have a reasonably big platform on there then you have to be aware that not everyone is going to like what you say and some people are really not going to like what they say even if it's only 5% of the people who are negative then it's still it can still gain and it, it certainly if you're feeling depressed yourself the negative stuff is actually more likely to get in because it's sort of so it, i think there's another dimension with mental health where you have to sort of be aware of your own um, self care and i haven't always been in the past i i feel i'm getting a little bit better um i i think i got into a little bit of a scrape in january where i was sort of getting back to people i shouldn't have been getting back to and the moment you do that you're just drawing attention to negativity and like putting a microscope on it so i'm getting better if i really want to say something and i think it might not go down with everyone i either don't say it or i say it with confidence and then walk away from it um and mm -hmm. it's just it's just about using social media in the right way. For me, for years, because I was quite an early person on Twitter, I used it almost as a, like a lot of people did back then, I, I used it almost like a, uh, it was just an impulse. There was no impulse control. It was just like, it was whatever I was thinking was there. And that was the sort of joy of it. Uh, and you can do that when you've got a few hundred followers, but when you've got thousands of followers, it becomes, uh, a little bit more tricky and you have to be a bit more accountable for what you're saying. So yes, I think Twitter has um, changed. Certainly my experience of Twitter has changed. I'm having to be a little bit, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'll never be full professional, but I'm having to be a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it is really interesting because on the one hand, you've got this platform that allows you to connect with other people and realize you're not alone, which I think is one of the most powerful parts of it. And at the same time, it can become this mechanism for just becoming, you know, like a, a full scale assault. And each platform has its different culture. It's it's funny. I, I was also one of the very early people on the platform, I think back in late 2007, 2008, when on any given day, you actually wouldn't know whether the platform was going to be up or not. You know, it was uh, South by Southwest would happen and Twitter was down because, you know, a couple thousand people were on it. And it's like, that was it. But but it, it is interesting how the, the conversation has changed in a really powerful way. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So, have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So, I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me, and it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. If that sounds familiar, you should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. You've referenced a couple of times this moment back uh, about 20 years ago. And I know that you end up uh, in Ibiza, basically work, working in the club scene as bartender slash promoter slash whatever it is that everyone does down there. But, you know, it's interesting to me because you described this three-year window that led you to a place where you came very close to taking your own life. And that became a catalyzing moment to step back and really, and step back into a process of figuring things out. But I'm actually curious what landed you there in the first place, because you undergrad, you study um, English literature, and then you end up in Leeds doing a master's in English lit. And then the next move out of that is a visa. <laughs> and I, I was curious what, like, how does that decision get made? Um, well, I first went to Ibiza in 1996. With, me and my girlfriend went on holiday um, to Barcelona. We'd spent a lot of time in Barcelona. And then in the middle of the week, we were young and we wanted to party. And then we met these Spanish guys in a bar who said, oh, you want to get the ferry to Ibiza? So we got the ferry to Ibiza. We had the best sleepless three nights of our lives. Um, went back home and then said, oh, next year we'll, we'll work out in Ibiza. And then, so we did that for three years. And so 
I'd have my winters and, and you know, nine months of the year. In, in Britain, we have a nine-month winter. So it's basically most of the time was in this cold northern climate, you know, in the north of England. So even colder than, and wetter than London in like Leeds and Hull, which you may not have heard of in, in the north of England. And, you know, studying. And then we had this sort of opposite existence in bright sunshine, you know, loud music, fun. And I think, I think penduluming between that, especially that year I did my master's degree, because you had a, an option where you could do the degree in one year or spread over two years and do it a bit more part-time. I did it every one year. And for the first few months, hadn't really buckled down. So I had this really intense period of about four months. And I was trying to do this whole potentially two-year degree course and, you know, reading about Byron and the Romantics and, um, you know, critical theory and all these French postmodern philosophers like Baudrillard and Derrida. And it was sending me a little bit insane. And I, I just needed... I just felt like I, I wanted almost brainlessness. I just wanted to sort of like go out and just sort of lose myself in the opposite. So I'd have those two unhealthy extremes of sort of like overthinking and then unthinking. And um, yeah, the, the year of my breakdown actually was the summer after that, because what happened after my master's degree is I, we moved to London and I was working in dead end jobs. I'd have a job for about three weeks and then either I'd get fired because I was useless at the job, or I would dramatically, as if I'm in a movie version of my own life, I'd walk out one lunchtime and, um, you know, never be seen again. That happened twice, actually. So I was obviously having some kind of mental troubles that I wasn't um, recognising and masking by going to the pub every night and drinking beer. And it, I feel like Abifa was just like, an extension of that, an extension of the escape into the pub. It was just like uh, four months of drink, drugs, very little sleep, loud noise, unhealthy food, and just a mess, really. But it was a, there were such moments of escape and freedom within that. Like you live those little moments, and I feel like I had to, I had to reach. The point I reached in the beef, I'm almost scared. It sounds strange. I'd almost be scared to know the version of me who didn't have that breakdown. Because if I hadn't got that extremely ill, and I have to I have to say, as I always say, but I get bored of saying it, but I think it's important because when people think, oh, you went wild in a beef, then obviously the breakdown was because you took loads of drugs and then you fell apart and had a bad trip or something. Actually, by the end of our third summer in Ibiza, and we had actual day jobs there, I was relatively bored of that stuff. And, and on the day I actually broke down, and it was a day, a, a specific day, it wasn't like a gradual thing. I, I broke down suddenly and I had a panic attack that sort of didn't end about 22 years ago today, actually. And, you know, I hadn't drank a drop of alcohol. I hadn't smoked a cigarette. It was 11 in the morning, so I hadn't, I, well, I hadn't done drugs for months, actually at that point and I feel like what happened to me was partly because in two, two weeks after that I was due to go back home go back to London get a real job me and Andrea had sort of decided this was going to be our last summer in Ibiza we've got to sort of grow up I was 24 years old didn't want to grow up so I feel like the breakdown for me was like that brick wall I was sort of hitting where even the, the link between doing a master's degree and 
going to the nightclubs of Ibiza, for me, was both of them were ways not to actually grow up and face the real world. You know, I'd stay at the university forever. I'd stay going to nightclubs forever. I would, you know, stay going to the pub forever. I just anything that would put off becoming a responsible adult. And so, you know, smashing into that mental breakdown of panic disorder, depression, generalized anxiety disorder, bits of OCD that were never properly diagnosed. But, you know, my main diagnosis was panic disorder because I was just in a state of sort of terror. That for me was how I grew up in a, a strange way. And I, I overuse sort of metaphors and cliches about depression, but I think one of the reasons people turn to metaphors with depression is because you go through this invisible thing that's hard to get people to understand. And I do kind of see, like, I love talking about caterpillars and butterflies because of the cocoon phase when the, the caterpillar is in its dissolving in its own enzymes for two weeks in the cocoon, and then it's transformed into something else. The, the caterpillar is in a very physical sense breaking down and sort of dissolving in its own sort of acids. And, you know, I do genuinely think of my breakdown as a kind of cocoon in, in, in a sense. You know, I, I literally, because I became agoraphobic with the panic, I was literally cocooned back in my childhood bedroom back in England. And I very rarely went out on my own. I was in these sort of dark rooms under grey skies that winter. And going through absolute hell, but I, I look back on it now as a kind of transformative, necessary step. Obviously, obviously, if I could have gone back uh, to be a teenager, to be a young adult, to be a 20-something person and actually say, hey, you've got issues here. You just need to grow up, you know, as myself now, you know, you've got to get physically healthy. You've got to start addressing some mental things. Then, you know, it could have been different. And it, But to reach that point of awareness for me, I think would have been quite difficult without having to reach a point of rock bottom so even though I'd never want to go through a full-blown full-blown maddening breakdown like that I wouldn't actually want to switch to the timeline where that hadn't happened if that makes sense mm. yeah I mean the 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 result of it um you stepping into a place of saying okay I need to figure this out and unwind it and and figure out how do I move forward how do I step back into a life that's more healthy and constructive and I've I've had this conversation with so many people um, who have had moments in their lives where they have been profoundly brought to their knees. And that led to some, you know, really, really big change in the way that they stepped back into their lives or the way they, they slowly got back up from their knees. And, and I've asked this, you know, so many of them, if not every one of them, like, do you feel like you can get back up and be in the place that you are now, like later in life? without going to that place. And to the one, almost everyone has said, like, I don't invite it. I didn't want it. It was horrendous. And I don't see how I would be here now the way I am now without having brought, been brought to that place, which is not, never, an, never an invitation for people to say, oh, let me like, you know, like push hard and like, see if I can get there. You know, that, that is absolutely not what we're saying. But I've, I've always been curious, you know, can you reach that point? Is there a is there a way to get through to a place of recovery and stepping into a, a healthier place without going through that sort of dark night of the soul? I think there is, but it takes you, you have to be kind of in tune with yourself. And the problem with me is I wasn't at all in tune with myself. I was mm. trying to continually escape myself, you know, and always escape, you know, 
with travel, going to different countries, but you always take yourself with you, don't you? So it's that old cliche. And I, I'd reached a point where I couldn't escape from myself any longer. And then I broke down. I can remember a real turnaround point for me. It was a few months after my actual breakdown back in England. And I was having another dip and I was in a supermarket and I was a mess. I was hiding tears. I was a mess. I was sort of imagining. I had these kind of hallucinations, which weren't what people think of as hallucinations. I wasn't literally like on an acid trip where I'd see giant chocolate bars walking around. I'd be tortured by a lot of mental imagery every time I sort of close my eyes. And the more, as with all sorts of anxieties and fears, the more you are scared of it, the more it comes to you. So I was at that point and I was being terrifying myself and then terrifying myself some more and you get into a cycle. But then I was at this point in a supermarket and no natural lighting. It was sort of an underground supermarket and just, I was so sensitive to everything. I could really feel that, you know, if there was no natural light. I was at a point and I thought, you know, I'm as low as you can feel, but I realized at a point I'm still going to live. I, I realized that if I wasn't going to live, if I was going to, you know, do something reckless and stupid, I would have done it. And I hadn't done it. And I, from that point on, I thought it gave me a little bit of power over the depression and over the fear because I thought, well, literally over the last few months, my mind had thrown everything at me. And I was still there. And it was almost like, and I'm not a particularly religious person, you know, typical British kind of somewhere between atheism and agnostic. But I was at a point where I thought, you know, if I had been a religious person, I would have felt, I've, I've sort of touched my soul here. It's kind of like, there's a part of me that couldn't be broken down person, um, that couldn't be, you know, got it you know there's all kinds of stuff that had crumbled away and it is called breakdown for a reason you do feel like yourself breaking down but there'd been a part of me and i suppose it's a part of you um, you know when i've been reading about buddhism and stuff it's very much about watching yourself you know there's always the two versions of yourself there's the self that's feeling and then there's the self that's experiencing the feeling and being aware of your experience so there's always a separation even in the midst of total pain there's a person experiencing the feeling and then there's another person observing you experiencing the feeling. And so I'd reached that point where I realized, okay, well, that person, that person who's observing all this, then they're, they're going to survive. They, they, there's a sort of, you know, I think we say rock bottom for a reason because you reach rock bottom and you find something solid, granite and hard. And that, I thought, okay, it's not going to be easy. There's going to be loads of dips, but I really always held on to that moment where I thought, okay, I can't be broken down further. And that was always, you know, people always say to depressed people, oh, remember, remember the good times, remember good times before. And, and that, that has a value. You know, it is important to remember that you haven't always felt this way and you'll feel better again. But there's also kind of a value. You can turn, reframe things where actually, if you've been through some bad times, that can have a value because that's how you measure your progress because you can actually think well that day in Ibiza you know I've had a horrendous day today I've had three panic attacks but it wasn't as bad as that day so you can actually you can actually have a bad day then that feels like progress and even if you're having the worst day imaginable then you can sort of like put it into a bank of bad days and, and think well okay this day actually is going to have some use in the future because it's going to be a marker and I'm not going to 
so I, I, I kind of became my own um, therapist and sort of taught myself how to sort of measure progress and all of that. And because um, the nature of my depression was coupled with panic disorder, it, it gave me a lot of um, invisible deadlines. Like it would say the most ridiculous stuff, you know, you won't be alive by the age of 25, or if you were alive, you'll be in a straitjacket somewhere, or, you know, your partner will leave you, you'll never get a job, this, 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 this. Gives you a big list. And obviously some bad things do happen in your life. No one's life is a, a bed of roses. I've had lots of bad things happen to me. But that worldview that depression gives you of ultra catastrophe all the time, that doesn't happen. So what happens is time slowly disproved the voice of depression. I'd get to my 25th birthday and my 26th birthday and 30th, 40th birthday, and, and, and you're still there. So time is kind of the one thing that's bigger than depression. And another sort of happy side effect of that is it, as being a young person, I can remember always worrying about aging. I can remember, you know, being a hypochondriac, worrying about physical illness and glomer. It totally reframed my view of time. I'm always sort of like so grateful to have reached an age. I'm sort of proud of being older. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually like that distance between my 24-year-old self. You know, I've got no, I'm so, I'm so glad I'm not one of those people who spends their life uh, nostalgically saying, oh, when I was in my early 20s, that was the best year of my life, because it really wasn't. And I, I have got progressively happier as I've got older. And um, yeah, so basically it, it's good to have that sort of measure of progress and actually, you know, embrace getting older. It's a kind of little triumph for me. Yeah, I, I love the notion of time being this sort of... Um slow, deliberate provider of evidence that controverts the storyline in your head. And eventually you start checking all the boxes that you thought would never be checked. And you're like, oh, so then all those things I was telling, they, they actually can't be true because time is showing me like that, that they were all wrong, but you got to be around for that time, you know? Exactly. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So you have this moment, you have this season, late 90s, very early 2000s. And at the same time, you start writing novels, kids books, building a reputation, starting to build a career. And 2014, I guess, is when you first... But all the, all the mental health stuff for you is happening in the background. This is not a public part of your conversation. You're not writing about it. You're building your chops, you know, more in the world of fiction. Yeah. And this is just what's going on in your, your personal life. And then 2014, you write a blog post, basically talking about that moment in Ibiza where you step to the edge of a cliff and then step back, Yeah. which creates, you know, like a, a, a tremendous response. Um, the next year that turns into the book, Reasons to Stay Alive which is received incredibly, you know, it becomes a huge hit. It, it reveals a lot of what we've been talking about right now. But what I'm curious about is you have up until that point then built a career, like a dozen or so years, more than that, as a writer and as a novelist. And, and in, in the world of writing, so often people kind of say, you know, you, you have your lane, you have the thing that you're known for, you know, keep doing more of what you're going to be successful at, what you've proven to be successful at especially your publisher is saying that to you. Yeah. When you decide to come out with a new book, um, when, when in 2015, you're like, Reasons to Stay Alive is coming out. And this is a complete and utter departure of what you've ever written about and also ever talked about, because this is about you. Mm. I'm curious about that decision and that moment and how it felt to you, like the day before all of this comes out, or even stepping up the year before, the day before you hit publish on that initial blog post that reveals this? Yeah, no, it's, it's well, the blog post was written with, you know, the blog post was going to be an end in itself. That was going to be my first and last word on it. The blog post, I've been writing these blog posts every week for a charity called Book Trust. I was a writer in residence for six months. And for a lot of that time, I've just been writing the generic stuff, the writing tips, different things about being a writer. And I was feeling a bit dry. I hadn't actually got much to say. And so out of sheer necessity of a deadline looming, and I, it must have coincided with me feeling a bit more relaxed about my experience. I just thought, wow, this is a good kind of safe space to test the water because not many people have been reading this blog. And I can just sort of like put it out there and uh, see what sort of the response is. And I put it out there and it, it was the only blog that I'd written for that um, charity, which, you know, had any kind of traction. And the response was amazing, loads and loads of comments. But I, don't, I still don't think I would have turned that into a book without a meeting. I, I'd met a, 
a, a woman called Kathy Rentenbrink, who's um, she's a writer herself, and she's experienced depression and a lot of trauma in her own life. And she's she knew a lot about publishing in London. She'd worked from a sort of main trade magazine called The Bookseller. She'd been high up there, and she, she she'd met me a couple of times, and we'd got on. And anyway, I had a meeting with her, and she said, "Matt, you need to write a book about." depression it would go down so well i i've got a good publisher in mind it would work you know i think i think the time's ready and i was like i was a bit hesitant because i thought well you know i've done reasonably well with my last book which was a fiction book but i should really capitalize on that by writing another fiction book and but she was quite persuasive and, and then i got into the idea and then i put it to my publishers and they weren't they weren't that into it my uk publisher they hate me saying this but they, they really weren't that into it when i um, first went to them about it. My, my publisher himself, he said, you know, the head, head publisher, he said, uh, Matt, you've got good imagination, just turn it into fiction, you know, and make it universal, make it fiction. And I, I, I was a bit stubborn with him because I, I actually remembered when I was depressed. And what really helped me was when finally you heard of people who'd gone through something um, I can remember going even to a homeopath. I didn't particularly believe in homeopathy. My mum wanted me to go to a homeopath and I was reluctant to go. And I was so glad I did, not because of the tinctures I was given for homeopathy stuff, but the woman herself had been through this ordeal and had depression and panic disorder. And she was telling me there in front of me what she'd been through. And there she was smiling, happy, and you know, with a job and able to cope. And that was so inspiring to see people who've been through absolute hell, been suicidal, come out the other side. So I thought, if I wrote this as a novel, you're going to lose all that. You're not going to have the sort of authentic thing of someone saying, this is me, I've been through this, you know, here you are. So for, with reasons to stay alive specifically, I didn't know quite what I was writing, but I knew it had to have that sense of authenticity and had to be nonfiction. And that was my only guiding up wheels. And I, I talked the publishers into it. They paid me very little money for it. I would have got four times as much, put it that way, if it had been a novel, to, if I'd have fictionalised it. But I sometimes in your career, you have to take what looks like the smaller move or you have to have a bit of faith in yourself. And um, I went away. I wrote it. I ignored terms like self-help book, memoir, things like that. I just thought, I'm not. I'm going to ignore the fact it's even a book. I'm just going to try and put some words on the page that would communicate to someone like me on a metaphorical and literal cliff edge in a beef at 24 years old. How would you get into that person's brain? What would you say to that person? What would you say to that young person going through that? And that, that was what I was doing with that book. And I definitely look back at it now and there's parts of it I cringe at, parts of it I get the terminology wrong. Part I, I talk about um, being a depressive a lot and I don't really like doing that because although I talk now about someone you know, having depression or me having depression, I feel like when you label yourself as a depressive, that's a, that's a comes a whole lot of weight. But I'm still very proud I wrote that book because um, it has apparently been useful you know people say it's been useful to them and it's been useful for people who haven't had depression understanding their son their partner their parent whoever it is what they've been going through so i was very glad certainly in this country to add to the uh, mental health conversation at that time 
Um, it was certainly the most personal thing I'd written because even though I've written uh, two more nonfiction books, one's called The Comfort Book, which is just a very, it, it's not necessarily aimed at someone with mental illness. It's just about ideas and things that have always comforted me. And then there's another one, a bit more negative, called Notes on a Nervous Planet, which is about all the ways the modern world is slowly making us insane. So that was more of a social look. But Reasons to Stay Alive was the one that actually sort of came from my own sort of flashbacks and experiences and stuff like that. And writing it actually was such a joy and such a release, even though it was about this heavy stuff, because, uh, you know, people ask, you know, what's it like going back to the worst experiences of your life? But the thing is, with worst experiences of your life or worst experiences of anyone's life, they're always kind of there, you know, they're always defining us in some way. So often when you actually let them out and you talk about them and you write about them, it actually feels more of a release than a sort of going back to. So it kind of wrote itself as much as a book ever writes itself. It was, you know, it was a short, yeah, I think it's something like 35,000 words. You know, it was probably the shortest thing I've ever written, but it was the most um, meaningful at the moment. Mm. It's always interesting to me when somebody decides to step out and not only share something about themselves, but also takes a risk in sort of like offering something to the world, which is so close to the bone and also so profoundly different than what they've offered before. But I'm wondering actually if that's really true, because if you look at your writing, even your fiction, your kids' books, there's a really, there's an interesting thing that often happens. It reminded me in a, a little bit of, uh, so Kate DiCamillo, who's been on the podcast in the past, writes these fantastic children's books. And and I remember she once, she told me, she, she said, always tell the truth, but give them hope. Yeah. And that's kind of what you thread into your writing, even in the fiction, even in the kids' books. It's like, you're not pulling punches. You're not saying, and everything's going to be awesome. And here's the story. You're kind of saying some hard stuff is going to happen. Yeah. And you're going to be okay. Yeah. You know, which is the fictionalized version of this. So, you know, when I first was thinking about it, I was like, oh, this is a huge departure, but I'm like, is, is it really like the departure is really just saying, look, this is a true story and this is my own experience. And, you know, even the stuff that you've written since then, uh, you know, the, the kid stuff, the truth pixie, you know, it's, it's all weaving into the same texture, you know, um, in the way that you, it feels like you're bringing yourself to your writing, but you're doing it in ways which that are sort of context appropriate for different types of readers. I think I think that's true because I always worry. I always think, oh, what, what genre should I write now? And you know, it's nice to have freedom, but there's also the, the sort of anxiety of having freedom where you, you don't know which path to take. And I always sort of sometimes envy like a, a thriller writer who has like one central detective and they write thirty-seven books with that detective. <laughs> and it'd be so nice to sort of sit down on the sofa and to know precisely the book they're going to write, but. I, I think with me, what I try and write, it requires lots of different angles. But yeah, you're right. Within it, I'm always trying to offer something. So even though when I'm writing something totally fantastical, like that children's book you mentioned, which I wrote, incidentally, straight after Reasons to Stay Alive, I sort of wanted to go into the, an opposite world. So I went into North Pole, Santa Claus, Father Christmas. It's a book called A Boy Called Christmas. It's going to be a film now. And... That, even though it's got pixies and elves and reindeer and trolls and all kinds of things, it's really a story about grief. Uh, there's a, a death, that, um, spoil it for anyone who wants to read it, but there's a, a death that comes halfway through the book. And it's about trying to find some kind of hope within that darkness. So I, so I never want to write, you know, pure 
rainbows and unicorns out of context. I want to actually go to some kind of, I normally start with some kind of authentic, hopefully authentic pain or struggle, and then try and find the light within that. Because I think that's how you offer hope to people. Because if you just sort of like say you need to do this or you need to just sort of smile and be happy, then no one's going to take that. You need to actually show that you've some experience of it yourself or your fictional characters have some experiences of it and it feels true. And I think one thing that stories can do is they can actually give us that kind of nourishment and strength by, you know, you're going through a hard time in life and you're reading about someone who's going through an even worse time in their life. I used to be obsessed as a teenager and I was going through a hard time as a teenager. You know the film Papillon with Steve McQueen and yeah, of course. Dustin Hoffman? I used to be obsessed with that film. People warn teenagers not to watch that film because it's so sort of, and there's been a remake recently, because it's so sort of like intense and got so many scenes of torture and prison and stuff. But that was a comforting film <laughs> for me to watch <laughs> because it showed what human beings can survive. You know, I suppose, uh, you know, Shawshank Redemption's another obvious one, but those sort of prison films, they show what life is like. And if you cannot, because I, Ultimately, Papillon is a kind of story of hope. And it's seen as a bleak prison drama. But yeah, you have to offer something which has some resonance, some truth to it. But you can take some sort of like positivity from it. And it's not always in an obvious way, as it isn't in Papillon. You know, it's not always obvious to hope. But sometimes it, things that help you aren't always the most obvious things or the helpful things. But yeah, I mean, with Mi the Midnight Library, my story, the Midnight Library, uh, I was very keen at the start to, to make sure the reader knew that Nora is in this horrendous state of mind. And, um, you know, she's really, really um, feeling low. And I, I, I knew that that was going to put some, would inevitably put some readers off because you've got quite a hard sort of 30 pages of suicidal despair to get through at the start. But I think... You know, uh, and, and very much uh, me trying to sort of borrow some uh, of the techniques of things like It's a Wonderful Life and stuff. I think if you start in that low place, you can end up in a much, much more hopeful place than if you'd have never gone there. You know what I mean? And, and yeah. I feel like that in life too. That's why I'm sort of thankful for having known um, so many periods of rock bottom because you are, you end up more grateful for the neutral moments. You know, as a young quite selfish young man i i always felt that to be happy you needed extreme experiences you needed to get out of your head or you needed to watch the most violent tarantino movie or you needed the loudest music up to 11 or this that and whatever you know all quite typical young man cliches um and afterwards after sort of falling apart i, I just appreciated neutrality a bit more i appreciated not always doing, you know, and actually just sort of, you know, what I was most scared of was just sort of sitting on a sofa with my own thoughts or just sort of lying in bed with my own thoughts. I never, I wanted to sort of like stay out all night, I think partly because I just, when I hit the bed, I just wanted to collapse and just not mm. have a moment of thinking of it. So to try and have a life of not thinking. And you can't do that. You ha eventually have to come to terms with yourself and you have to sort of you know, not necessarily going around in a state of thinking you're amazing all the time, but you have to come to some sort of, some kind of place of kindness towards yourself and tolerance of yourself. And um, that's kind of what my recovery was for me. It was actually accepting myself when I was feeling low, accepting my, you know, not 
beating myself up for having a couple of labels here and there that have been diagnosed to me and just sort of like total acceptance. And once you reach that point, it helps you even when you're better. It helps you appreciate things and understand things. Um, one, one very interesting thing I think about anxiety, which again is kind of hellish to go through, is you, you're very much in tune with what makes you feel better and what makes you feel worse. Like often when we're just sort of running normally, we're not always aware of, you know, how little things affect our states of mind. But when you've got mental illness, those little things become massive things. You know, like the sun goes behind a cloud and you sort of like feel a weight and uh, or, or some, you feel some sense of relief about something and it's like hallelujah chorus going off in your head. So you actually learn about yourself, what, what you kind of need um, to be happy. And you build up a, while you're still ill, you build up a little toolbox and you sort of know. And it changes. I'm sure the toolbox changes from person to person. There are some overlaps. For me, very much, you know, going out into the open air, running every morning, doing things like that, um, getting interested in stuff, getting interested in anything that wasn't my own brain um, was so important to me. That last thought you just had, uh, as you were sharing that, uh, something that a um, guy named Chip Connolly once once uh, told me, actually, I think it was in a book that he wrote. He said, you know, people think the opposite of depression is happiness, but he's like, the opposite of depression isn't happiness, it's curiosity. Yeah. Because that ceases to exist when you're in, and he, he said, kind of said, you know, like he knew that he was starting to turn the corner when he started to be curious about things again, including himself. And his own life. Yeah. Find a passion as large as your fear. You know, find something that will fill that space. And I, I, I definitely, you know, I don't want to um, romanticize mental illness in any way because it's no fun at all. But I do think there's something about when you've experienced any kind of grief or pain in your life where it takes over a kind of space of you, but it sometimes expands that space. So when that pain leaves or retreats slightly, you're left with the space. So you, 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 you can fill that space with other stuff and you actually feel in some, some sense kind of like a bigger person because of it. Like you actually, that sense of gratitude, that sense of love, that sense of appreciation of whatever it is, of cooking, of you know, going out to a concert or whatever it is, you have a greater sort of sensitivity to that stuff. And yeah, it's not always worth the price, obviously, but if you can take that silver lining, then it is quite a therapeutic thing. Mm. One of the things you shared, um, you talked about the uh, the comfort book, which is um, the most recent, and uh, which is an interesting book also because it's you know this is just sort of a book of thoughts. It's almost like you know you can flip to any page, any given page, and just like oh, here's anything from a, a sentence or two to you know like a couple a, a little bit longer, and it's just. It's it's almost like you know a, a daily meditation type of thing. Look here, here's an interesting little thing that's going to plant a seed, and let me just noodle on it. Uh, you know, like as I move through the day, one of the things you share um, is that happiness occurs when you forget who you're expected to be. That landed in a really direct and powerful way with me. Yeah, I think so. When I think back to some times I'm happiest, it's always when you're at your least self conscious. When you're kind of like. You're not even trying necessarily actively to be happy. There's no sort of try in it. There's no kind of effort in it. It's moments where you just kind of lose yourself, whether you were laughing with family or friends or, you know, you're just sort of like feeling happy. You, it can happen just walking the dog. It can happen just 
but can be just those little moments that feel like the universe is suddenly in harmony and you're part of this great cosmic order and everything just feels right. And it just kind of happens, but it often happens when you're not trying to be a certain way. You're not worrying about your next deadline. You're not thinking of yourself as, in my case, like Mr. Writer or Mr. Mental Health Spokesperson or whatever else, you know, whatever labels people attach to you. You're just sort of free of all that. You're not drowning in those expectations. And often they're very much self-expectations. And yeah, just being, you know, a human animal in a sort of positive sense. Mm feels like a good place for us to come full circle in our conversation as well. So hanging out in this uh, international container of the Good Life Project, if I uh, offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? Um, I think gratitude is the first thing that comes up. Just appreciating, you know, there's so many things we have in every life to, to complain about and to be down about, but that we can actually forget the things we have to be grateful for. And I, I noticed early on with myself that a lot of the things I had dreamed of, but I'd imagined happiness would come if I only got you know, whatever it is, study relationship, a book deal, something like that. When you get that, it's so fleeting. You have about three weeks and then, then, then it's on to the next thing. The goalpost shift and, and it's got to be like a best-selling book. It's got to be, you know, you've got to be married or got to have kids. There's always a next little... Um, Goalpost. And I think, you know, if we can kind of resist that urge and actually want, you know, some of those things that we always did want, but now we have them, you know, keep that sense of wanting and gratitude towards them. If we can want what we already have along the way, rather than continually looking forward, I think a good life is just sort of a gratitude for where we are, what we've got, and not that yearning that we're often um, encouraged to feel and to just sort of like, yeah accept accept ourselves and accept the miracle the messy miracle often of being alive on this fragile beautiful planet of ours thank you thank you very much hey before you leave if you love this episode safe that you'll also love the conversation that we had with kate DiCamillo camillo about writing and creativity and telling the truth but always leaving people with hope you'll find a link to kate's episode in the show notes and even if you don't listen now be sure to click and download so it's ready to play when you're on the go and of course if you haven't already done so go ahead and follow good life project in your favorite listening app and if you appreciate the work we're doing here on good life project please go check out my new book sparked it'll reveal some incredibly eye-opening things to you about what makes you come alive about the fundamental nature of work that lights a fire inside of you and it'll show you how to tap these insights to reimagine and reinvent work as a source of meaning and purpose and joy you'll find a link in the show notes or you can also find it at your favorite bookseller now till next time i'm jonathan fields